Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. This is the climactic moment of Abraham's entire life, and it might be a story you're familiar with. It's certainly a story that causes um, uh, a lot of kind of consternation in both uh, the casual biblical reader's life, but also in the academy, and, uh, and you'll see why very quickly. So this is the biggest moment in Abraham's life and in his faith with God, and I think you'll see why pretty quickly. And what you need to know is... At this point in Abraham's life with God, his understanding of all of God's promises and salvation and redemption is tied to the promise to Abraham that he will have a son. And so this is dealing, uh, God talking to Abraham about his son, his first son Isaac, that he had been waiting for for decades. So this is Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, And he said, Here I am. And God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering. He arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over and worship and come again to you. And Abraham Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order, bound up his son Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story, and we need you to teach our hearts this story and what it means for us today and how how we can go forward in life being changed by what we learn about you and what we learn about ourselves from this story. Holy Spirit, we need you to be with us, to actually have the courage to believe in you and to trust you and to follow you and to find the sweetness of your love. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, this might seem a funny place to start, but we here's the first question. 
how do you, everybody in this room has probably encountered a situation comparable to this. How do you decide between eating a salad and having three to four pieces of pizza, right? We've encountered these moments. Huh? Always go with pizza. It's easy for Zach. Um, we encounter these moments often, right, where you're, where you're presented with two different dining options, and uh, you've got to make a decision between them, and they both have merits, and they both have costs. And, but we apply this, right, we, we do a pro and con almost instantaneously. Um, we apply it all over the place. Here's what I want to get you to think about is how you make decisions. How do you determine if you're going to decide between English and CS? Um, how do you decide between staying in with your hallmates this weekend or going to some party or some rush event? How do you decide between whether or not to come to RUF on a Tuesday night? And my, the reason I kind of throw those out uh, for fun is these decisions, all of them, from the most mundane to really, really important ones and everything in between, uh, we all make them based on a system of beliefs about what we believe will give us the best chance at full life. Right? So, the salad option. Trimmer waistline, perhaps you perceive that to be more attractive, perhaps it's also the healthier choice for your heart, for athletic performance, and you get to feel better about yourself, right? A sense of superiority. So there are a lot of good reasons for the salad. (laughs) However, pizza tastes amazing, and we all know that we're lying and we're like, well, I really like the taste of salad more than pizza. That's a lie we tell ourselves so we feel good about our choice. But it's the choice of like sensual pleasure of taste and a heartier meal and a fuller experience, right? Here's, now, here's what I'm saying. And we, apply, we can take the, my point is, we all list pro and cons all the time. That's how we make decisions. And it's not just that we list pro and cons. It's actually that we weight each thing on that list differently according to what we value or what we love. Does that make sense? So CS or English, maybe you like to read, but CS offers you kind of a better chance of being competitive in the job market. Neither one of these things are wrong. You don't, maybe you aesthetically enjoy this better, but this is okay to also care about this. And at some point, you have to make a decision. And when you make that decision, what's being revealed to you is what you value more deeply. And I'm actually not saying any of these things are better than the other, pizza or salad, CS or English, but English is probably better. But (laughs) actually, they all have good reasons. And what I want you to see from just bringing up this scenario is that what everyone has is a hierarchy of loves. And that's how we make decisions is according to our hierarchy of loves, that you have things that are kind of important We have things that are really important, and we have things that are supremely important. And when we make decisions, we actually most often subconsciously or intuitively access that hierarchy of loves and say, where does this decision get me in that hierarchy? Is this a lower love that I don't care about as much? I'm willing to sacrifice that because it appeals to this higher love. So write English and CS. CS is an easier to predict a higher trajectory of uh, professional kind of ascendancy, right? And at the end of the day, I choose that because even though I do like English, I don't like reading and being guided in my reading as much as this. That's actually okay. My point is, we all have a hierarchy of loves, and that's how we make decisions. Um, Christian or not, it's a belief system of what is worth loving the most. And everyone believes 
that what you think is worth loving the most is worth it. It's what you invest your life in. That's, this is what, we actually judge each other all the time according to our hierarchy of love. So my best friend spends, uh, goes and gets massages at this, the Rosewood on Sand Hill for $200. To me, that's insane. That is so low on my hierarchy of love. I would much rather spend $200 on shoes, right? We're always, because shoes, there's supreme love and shoes are right here. <laughs> We all have this hierarchy, and all of our hierarchies are different. That's what I first want y'all to get. Um, tonight, you're going you're gonna to decide whether or not you want to study till 11, or study until 2, or goof off till 12.30 and study till 4. You're going to access a hierarchy of loves to make that decision. Uh, do you, this, guy, this stuff is serious, too. I mean, do you, you're frustrated with your friend. Do you talk to them or about them? Right? Uh, those things offer you kind of different outlets. Uh, do you go home this summer or do you intern in Silicon Valley? And here's what I want. Uh, so got, you got that idea, right? We make all of our decisions based on a hierarchy of love, weighted loves. What is worth giving myself to? What am I willing to sacrifice for things that are more supremely important? And that's the next point. We all have a hierarchy of love. And secondly, every love requires sacrifice. Who has taken an economics class? This is like Econ 101. This is like sixth grade Econ. And you've talked about opportunity cost. Yes? We understand the principle of opportunity cost. When you make a decision, you give up other things. So here's what's going to happen next quarter for freshmen or upperclassmen that might pledge. Uh, Next quarter, you're going to actually give up some friendships you've already made. On some level, we all want to say, no, not me, I'm the exception. But on some level, that's actually us just trying to soften the blow to our conscience that pledging actually requires you to put some friendships on the chopping block in favor of a level of social advantage that you perceive is going to be gained by this new community. Right? Pledging is going to cost you friendships. There's an opportunity cost. That's what opportunity cost is. One higher love or higher hope, one out against a lower love or lower hope or lower allegiance. Knowing yourself, this is just general anthropology, what it means to be human, how God made us, Christian or not. Knowing yourself is being able to be honest with yourself about how your decisions reveal your hierarchy of loves. Uh, If nothing else tonight, take that away. That applies to anyone. And what happens sometimes is we don't like what we find out about ourselves, and so we try to justify our decision or lie to ourselves about our hierarchy of loves. So our friend invites us to their birthday party at a, at a restaurant on Friday night, and then Thursday afternoon another friend invites us to Aspen. And the choice is obvious, right? You go to Aspen. And we say to ourselves and to them, oh man, I'm really so sad. I really wish I could have gone to your birthday party. And what we don't want to do is we actually don't want to be entirely honest. What we're really saying is, I'm embarrassed that I care about this social opportunity for myself more than I care about your birthday. And I'm willing to actually sacrifice my word. I'm willing to be someone who can't keep their commitments. I'm willing to sacrifice my reputation about what you think about my word for this opportunity in Aspen. We don't want to admit that, right? So we have these like clever rhetorical ways of lying to ourselves and others about what's really going on oh man, I wish I had really been there. No, you always do what you wish you want to do, right? We just say that to soften the blow to our conscience and hopefully to soften the blow to our reputation, to our friend. We all do this. This is everybody, okay? St. Augustine 
describes sin in this way. He says, sin is disordered loves. Here are his words. Sin is when your loves are out of order. Loving a just and holy life requires one to be able to be capable of an objective and impartial evaluation of things. To love things, that is to say, in the right order. So that you don't love what is not to be loved. Or that you don't fail to love what should be loved. Or that you don't have a greater love for something that should be loved less. Or you don't have a lesser love for something that in fact should be loved greater. So St. Augustine says the essence of sin and brokenness in the world is when that love hierarchy is actually out of order. When things are held as supreme that in fact are not supreme. When things are held lower that in fact are not lower. I'll give you an example of this. I'll tell myself for a minute. I shared this with um, some guys last night to illustrate this point. I played soccer growing up through high school. I played rugby in college. That tells you about the kind of soccer player I was. Um, I'm both proud and ashamed of that. But uh, my, soccer, my high school soccer coach did not like me at all. Um, and the reason why is because I didn't care about winning or losing. I was center back on defense, which is a fairly important decision, uh, and, or a fairly important position uh, on defense. But I never cared if the team won or lost. What I really cared about was the one-on-one psychological battles I had with opponents. So what I really enjoyed is like physically dominating. Now, <laughs> I, I'm, that sounds like I'm boasting. I'm actually not. I'm trying to illustrate this. Um, that drove my coach crazy because that allowed me to be successful to a certain level. But what it also did is it cost our team on several occasions because I didn't care about getting red cards or, get, or drawing penalty kicks in the box, which was always giving our team or giving the other team a goal, right? So here's what happened. I had one love, my individual psychological warfare with the, with the strikers on the other team, and I cared more about that than winning. This is a case of disordered love. <laughs> Y'all get what I mean by disordered love now? There should have been a supreme love at the top winning, which normal, like, psychologically healthy athletes have. <laughs> but then there are these people called divas who care more about their individual performance than they do about the team. Uh, that's why we read the confession beforehand. <laughs> Augustine is saying that in life, the chief and sole cause of misery is that we don't know how to rightly order our loves. Uh, we don't make the thing that is worthy of being our chief and guiding love to which all other loves submit. We won't let it occupy that place. Something else replaces it. And so the hierarchy gets disordered, and when it's disordered, dysfunction and pain are the result. Let me give you examples. When the immediate experience of pleasure becomes more important than the costly and timely pursuit of genuine intimacy and connection, right? When pleasure, immediate pleasure, is more important than the timely pursuit of connection and intimacy, then we interact with pornography. And when we interact with pornography, it absolutely wreaks havoc in your ability to meaningfully connect over time. Okay? See, it begins to cost us when our orders get out. When money and success become a driving love, then fair business practices and honesty in our schoolwork become secondary and we're willing to sacrifice those at time, right? We're willing to sacrifice our integrity. When mastering the shape and performance of our body becomes our driving passion, we sacrifice mental and physical health. 
When reputation, how people think about you, becomes your chief love and hope, you sacrifice character. You stop standing for anything unpopular and bend all the time to the opinions and desires of people around you. When independence and freedom become your chief love and your chief hope, you actually sacrifice intimacy and connection. When your cause, see these, these are good things, when your cause becomes so central to you, you actually sacrifice the ability to dignify people that don't get involved in your cause. All, here's the thing, all of these things are actually good in the right place. Pleasure is good, the Bible commends it. Money actually doesn't say, the Bible never says it's bad. In fact, God loves for people that money and power and success are great in service of the kingdom. It's the love and them taking over our lives that's evil. Uh, a healthy body is a great thing. All independence and freedom are great things. Causes are great things. But when these great things become chief things, become ultimate things, they've lost their place in the proper hierarchy of love and they bring destruction. When it's like fire. Fire in its appropriate context is light and life and comfort. Right? In a fireplace, in a fire ring. Fire, out of its appropriate context, is death and destruction. What sin does is it takes good things and warps them by actually treating them like they're ultimate things. And the world is fundamentally actually good and full of beauty. That's the way God made it. When you read Genesis, it says, this is good. Everything I made is good. The people are good. The place is good. The ugliness and the disrepair and the dysfunction in our lives is the result of taking good things in the world and making them our ultimate thing, moving them up the hierarchy of love to being our chief thing. And what happens when these things take hold of our highest place and our highest love and our highest hope is what they do is they require that you sacrifice your humanity. Death in the Bible is not simply major organs ceasing to operate. The Bible has always seen the human experience as that of an embodied soul. To be human is not simply to be, have physical processes. To be alive is not to have your major organs functioning. It is to be psychologically and spiritually and relationally integrated and full. When things that are not designed to be chief loves take the place of chief love, you pay for it with your humanity. It ends up costing us our life. Every chief love requires sacrifice. Now, here's what you need to know. God's not any different. And the reason I spent so much time talking about this is this story is absolutely about this fundamental human dynamic. And this is in keeping with showing us in the life of Abraham that he is an example of the life of faith. That we can understand through Abraham's story how we can have a filling experience of rich life in connection with God himself, our creator. And if you've been coming, you should feel echoes through the events of life of Abraham. This echoes so many different other occasions where God interacted with Abraham. The first one in Genesis 12, God said, Abram, leave your home, leave your kindred, leave your land. God was saying, trust me. Place my promise to you Above all your normal means of security and identity. Look to me. Trust me. Let me be your guiding and chief love. But what happens in this chapter, decades later, is God makes this supreme demand on Abraham. Isaac is Abraham's everything. 
If you read Genesis, Isaac is the thing for which Abraham had been waiting for decades. You know, we're waiting for spring break. That's a couple weeks away. We're waiting for graduation. That's a quarter or a couple of years away. You're waiting for a job or an income or romance or a family. And those things are anywhere from a few weeks to a few years off. Abram's hopes, he had lived decades anticipating the moment of Isaac's birth. Placed all his hope in his identity. God had promised Isaac. This was the fulfillment of God's promises. He had based all of his life decisions on this child. He had sacrificed so much of his life, right? Left his family, his land, his kindred. And here God says, take your son, your only son, your son whom you love. That repetition is about how central Isaac is to Abraham's identity. And it says, offer him as a burnt offering to God. Give him to God. God is going to Abraham's chief love. The thing that is at the center of his life. The thing that's so central to his sense of identity that he can't actually conceive of who he is apart from it. And we, 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 can, we, can fail to, we can miss this a little bit because we fail to understand how central family and children, especially sons, when you read the first five books of the Bible, first sons are central in the way God kind of deals with his people. It's how a family is valued in, uh, in the ancient Near East. How much that is their sense of worth, their life, their value, everything. Isaac represented Abraham's future. Isaac, the son you love, this was his emotional center. This is his heart of hearts. And God says, that's the thing I want. Go to Moriah and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. What does this mean for us? It means this. To have life with God, he demands that he be your chief love. And that means he's after whatever else you hold above him. Jesus says this all throughout his ministry. When he tells the people, you can't serve two masters, you can't serve God and money. When he goes to the rich young ruler, and the rich young ruler is what must it do to be justified, he says, sell all that you have and follow me. He goes to the heart of the rich young ruler's identity. God is after the thing in our lives that you never thought he could or would ask for. And you know the thing that he's after because all of your resources rise up to naturally fight and argue the hardest and justify how that could never be the thing that God would want from you. If you use the phrase, if God loved me, he would never, whatever follows that is exactly what he wants. And here's why he wants it, is because he loves you. That's what he does with the rich young ruler. So, first point of application is this. You're never dealing with the God of the Bible if what you sense that he wants from you is just to tweak your schedule a little bit, like go to RUF for church some more, and then try to drink a little bit less. You're not dealing with the God of the Bible if you think, "Ah, that's what God wants from me. If that's all, you're not doing business with the God uh, or with Jesus. God is painfully intrusive. Secondly, so he's after your, our things, our most important things. Secondly, sometimes when God is saving us, it feels like he's killing us. And that's really just kind of describing 
the experience of that first point of application. The reason why it feels like he might be killing us is because our idols, our chief loves in that hierarchy, are the things that we cling to for life. I have to have this or I am no one, right? I can't lose this or I'm no one. So if they're the things that we cling to for life, when God calls for them, it will feel like he is taking our life. But what he's actually doing is he's saving it. it we've, some of us have experienced this when we try to get a friend to break up with a horrible significant other. We're like, I know how much you love them. They are killing you. In love, I'm going to fight with you to make you go through this painful experience because I love you more than your own wisdom allows you to love yourself, actually. right? Some of us had that fight with somebody. We're like, I'm going to push you into a painful place because I love you and because it will save you. Right? God is going to make you hate him sometimes because he's saving you. Third point of application, then we'll move on. There's no bargaining with God. There's no like, all right, I'm committed to being a Christian or I'm going to make this decision to start following Christ and to believe in Jesus, but, but will I still be able to? Fill in the blank. Uh, or as long as I don't have to give up, fill in the blank. Or as long as he doesn't challenge me or I can't go to a church that teaches or, and we fill in the blank with things that we know God's spoken about. But what happens here is the same thing that happens in Genesis 12. There's no negotiation. In Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, go to the land I will show you. Right? Our tendency is like, well, God, tell me how it's going to go. Is there a Chick-fil-A on the way? Can we stop? Where is the land? What is it going to cost me? He doesn't give him any of that. He says, trust me, go where I'll show you. Here he does that again. Go to a mountain that I will show you. It's open-ended. There is no guarantee. There's no negotiation. Tonight, actually, as we left our house, I told the little girls, the 10-year-old girls, um, I was like, y'all have to go to bed 30 minutes early tonight. I wanted them in bed at 8 o'clock. And they're like, why, Dad? And I said, I'm not answering that question because I want them to have an experience. And the experience is this. We're waking up at 3.30 tomorrow and driving up to Tahoe and skiing all day. I am asking when you're a kid, right, going to bed early is the worst thing in the world. (laughs) I am actually asking them to embrace suffering, and I'm not telling them why, because I have something great planned for them. And I didn't negotiate. What are we getting up for? I'm not telling you. (laughs) Maybe I'm doing that for me, but (laughs) to enjoy the surprise. When we're doing that, we're saying, God, I'll let you be a part of my life, but I won't let you be my God. I want you to be my assistant. That's saying, I'll be a Christian, I'll do this religious thing, as long as God uh, helps me get the stuff that's really important to me and doesn't tinker with the things that I still really care about and really, really want. That's not asking God to be your God. He's not interested in being your assistant. That, too, is also not in any way distinctive Christian faith, and it's not rich or filling either. God makes a horrible assistant. And here's why. You can't enjoy what God has for you unless you trust Him with every part of your life. And as long as we hold on to other little important things and say, I'm not going to let God tamper with these things, what those things are is they are weights that actually hold us down from joy with life in God. 
It's, it's kind of like this. I called Elizabeth in December of 2010 while we were still uh, doing campus ministry at South Carolina. I was in Dallas at the time. She was back in South Carolina. And I said, what would you think about moving our family from South Carolina to Northern California to do RUF at Stanford? And this is what she said. She said, as long as I'm with you, I'll go anywhere. Which is awesome. <laughs> That's a little bit about what, how God is inviting Abraham and God is inviting us. Responding to God in faith is saying, if you're with me, I'll go anywhere. If you're with me, I'll give up anything. If God is with me, I'll let go of anything as long as I'm with you. Here's the thing. God requires sacrifice just like all our other loves. And the reason why is because you can't enjoy intimacy with God when you have a divided heart. You have little walled-off sections that you won't let Him tinker with. When Elizabeth and I do premarital counseling, one of the things we do is we try to find all the different ways that in, in, uh, individuals in an engaged couple are saying to each other implicitly and sometimes explicitly, no, not this part of life. I won't let marriage touch that. I'm not going to share this with you. I won't let you have a say in this. I'm not going to let you in on this part of my life. Those are the seeds of relational failure. Those are the source of relational decline. And those are the things that actually destroy, eventually, the ability to enjoy the relationship. Wherever we are the most defensive and protective in our life from God's call, that's the place that prevents us from the deepest delight in Him. This is what G.K. Chesterton said about following Jesus. He says, The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's not the case that we've tried following Jesus and found that he failed. This is what Chesterton says. Following Jesus has been found difficult and left untried. Now here's the big difference between the sacrifices we make to our other chief loves when they guide us and the sacrifice that God commands that we make and that Abraham makes right here. Remember what we said about all other chief loves in the manner in which they demand sacrifice. When social comfort becomes your chief need, you actually ignore the socially awkward. You sacrifice your ability to be compassionate. When happiness becomes your chief need and your chief love, we become a less reliable friend because people are costly. When success becomes your chief love or chief need, some of us actually have been the children sacrificed on the altar of career. Right? We've seen our parents sacrifice their marriage. When control becomes your chief guiding thing, you sacrifice freedom, right? All other chief loves are requiring sacrifice. Every other chief love actually erodes our humanity. We said that. You become less of a person. You become more angry and unrelenting and fearful and competitive and insecure and more addicted. Our humanity is dying over the course of these sacrifices. What happens to Abraham when he sacrifices his son Isaac up to God? The text slows down into frame by frame, painful slow motion. It's hard to read. Right, And the reason it slows down is so that we can see that Abraham is not gaming the system, pretending to follow God and going through the motions, knowing he's not going to carry it out. It's slowed down frame to frame. He walks with his son for three days in agony. His son carries the wood. He carries the fire and he carries the knife. And his son says, "Um, uh, Behold, I see the fire and the wood, but Father, where is the lamb for the offering? And Abraham says, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Commentators agree that Abraham had no idea what was going to happen when he said that in verse 8. 
all he knew is that God would make things right somehow, but that he had to follow God. What Abraham wasn't doing in this moment is he was not doing, I can do this, I can do this, I got this, we're going to make it, we're going to figure it out, I can handle this. His answer was, God will make this right, I don't know how. I know God to be good, so I'll follow him even though I cannot understand him. What he contemplated was not his own strength, integrity, and character, and stick to make it up the mountain and to follow through. What was on Abraham's mind was the character of God and the promises of God and the faithfulness of God and the trust that somehow God was going to make it right. That's where his mind, that's where his heart was. He wasn't looking inside of himself for the strength to do something right. He was trusting God. Now, here's the thing. If sin is when our loves get out of order, right? And the things that shouldn't be loved first become our first loves. And then there's fallout that proceeds from us. And we begin to defraud ourselves and we also defraud others. We're actually beginning to functionally already pay the price for our sin. We're culpable. And it's in fact, it's, it's our fault when we, make, when we make human approval our chief love and need and hope. And then the fallout of becoming an elitist comes home to roost. That's the fallout. That's what eventually happens when a human approval is a chief need or chief hope. It turns you into elitist because when approval becomes our chief value, we need comparison points by which to understand ourselves as better than others. So what we need to do is we need to deny some people some dignity, devalue them according to some ways that they've failed morally, professionally, academically, intellectually, politically, so that we can feel better than them. We have created an elitist society by our need to be approved by one another. It's our fault. God holds us accountable to the dysfunction and the pain and the disorder and the chaos that our lives of disordered loves has brought into ourselves and into the world. And God has to be a God of justice or He's not God. God, we could never worship a God who doesn't hold evil accountable. And God, what He's doing right here is He's holding Abraham accountable because Isaac is Abraham's chief love, his chief hope, his identity and his security and that is the price of Abraham's sin. The price of our sin is the chief love that we hold over against God. It feels like death because it's the things we cling to for life. Because it is, in fact, the things that we've staked our lives on. But the story doesn't end right there, right? Just a reminder, everything we love is already taking our lives. The whole book of Ecclesiastes is about that. Here's an amazing quote by David Foster Wallace, not a Christian, who talks about that. Here's something that's weird but true. In day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice is what you choose to worship. He's talking about a hierarchy of loves. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing, be it JC or Allah or Yahweh or Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths, there's some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that anything else you worship eats you alive. You worship money and things... If they're where you tap meaning in life, you'll never have enough. You'll never feel like you have enough. Worship your body and beauty, sexual allure, you'll always feel ugly. Worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. You'll need more power than ever over others to numb your own fear. I mean, it's not like ironic 
or a mystery why the most beautiful people in our culture feel the most ugly and have the most disordered relationship with food and exercise. It's not ironic that the most powerful person on the planet today is wildly insecure. Those things are connected. He worships power. He feels powerless. Everything we love is taking our life. It's defrauding and denying our humanity. But God is different. What does he do in this place? Verse 12, he sees that Abraham has trusted him and given up everything in trust to God. I know that you fear God, for you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Don't lay your hand on the boy. Now I know that you fear God. This doesn't mean that Abraham hasn't given up Isaac. It's actually the very opposite. Abraham has in fact given up Isaac to God and he stops him. And the reason he stops him is God provides a substitute. Abraham looked up. Behind him there was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. Abraham took the ram, offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. The sin price of Abraham was his son. But he doesn't pay it. God pays the sin price by another means. Abraham understands the cost of his disordered love. His betrayal of God, the cost required of him, is his most important thing. And he gives up his central hope to God. And when he lets go and when he trusts God, God doesn't take Isaac. God redeems Isaac. He provides a substitute payment for the life of Isaac, for the sacrifice to be made. That is how God is both a God of justice and a God of grace. And what we know, and what Abraham knew at the time, is that the goat wasn't a sufficient sacrifice. It was a symbolic sacrifice pointing forward to the true Lamb of God. To Jesus, whose life was given in payment for the disorder and the dysfunction and the pain and destruction that our lives have brought on ourselves and one another. Romans 8.32 He did not spare His own Son, but gave His own Son up for us all. How will He not also graciously give us everything that we need? God does for us the very thing He demands from us. He demands our lives. He demands Abraham's son. He gives up his son. He gives up his life, his only son, his son that he loved. Because you are His chief love. And this test is calling our hearts back to Him. He is seeking to redeem our humanity. This is the difference. This is the only hope. Anything else, and in fact everything else that's demanding sacrifice in our life, takes our life in doing so. If you serve it, it will take your life. If you betray it, it will take your life. God also demands everything from you so that He can take your life to, or sorry, not so that He can take your life to, but actually so that He can redeem it. So that He can restore it. So that He can make all things new. This is the thing. When we abuse sexuality, when we serve it, it gets stolen from us. Right? God's goal is to redeem sexuality. 
When we, abu- when we worship achievement, we become mortified, fear-driven people with no time. The delight of achievement actually gets taken from us. God actually wants to redeem your work. When we worship our social life, we become calculating, insecure, social nightmares. God actually wants to redeem friendship for you. And it only happens when we give these things to Him. When our heart, and with our things, and with our time, and with our decisions, we say, if I have the love of God and none of these things, I have everything. I trust you. Idols can only become truly good things again when we've let go of them. They can only be restored to their proper place in the hierarchy of love when in our hearts God has been set as our chief love. And every other God that we worship is aiming for the death of all things in our life. God is aiming for the redemption of all things in our life. He is so opposed to your death that He wants first and foremost to take the things from us that are killing us because they've captured our hearts. He wants those first. He wants us to let them go to Him so that He can redeem them, so that He can redeem you. This is an invitation to walk up the mountain with Abraham. In your arms carrying all of your most important things, the things you could never question for being so important. And say, here, God, I give these to you. That's what repentance is. Here's the thing is, Stanford says, serve me. If you serve Stanford, it's going to take your life. We know this. We've, ex- we've all experienced this to some degree, myself included, right? You're like, I've become a little bit less human the more and more this thing gets a control of me. Here's the other thing about Stanford. You serve it, it takes your life. If you betray it, it'll take your life. Right? You, don't, you stop serving Stanford, you're out. You're fr- our friends, you serve them, you get anxious, you betray them, you cut out. Everything else we serve, we either serve it and it takes our life or we betray it and it takes our life. God is saying, bring your things to me. I won't take them from you. I'll redeem them for you. He redeems Isaac. What you find when you give these things to God is he doesn't take them from you. He points you to Jesus so that you can see in him the price that God paid for our folly, for our disordered loves. And when our lives are no longer, and our eyes and our hearts are no longer fixed, on all of our most important things we can never let go of, but our eyes are actually transfixed on God's love displayed in His Son Jesus on the cross. This is what happened. Redemption breaks out into your life. It breaks out into all those areas of your life that none of us ever wanted God to touch. It is the restoration of all things. The end of the book of Revelation is about the restoration of all things, not the removal of all things. How... All right, we've gone 42 minutes. I'm so sorry. Can I like, read a short story from C.S. Lewis just to close about this? Okay. I didn't know if I was going to do this or not. The Great Divorce is fictional accounts of people traveling from hell up to heaven to see what it's like and then deciding whether or not they want to stay. Okay? So this is C.S. Lewis telling the story of a man who has something, a pet lizard, that he doesn't want God to take away. I'm going to read this and then we're going to close. I'm sorry for going so long. I really like this passage. We're going to talk about it a lot more. So here's this person with a pet lizard. Off so soon, says a voice. The speaker was more or less human in shape, but larger than a man, and so bright that I could hardly look at him. His presence smote on my eyes and on my body too. There was heat coming off of him as well as light. Yes, I'm off, said the ghost. The ghost is the visitor. Thanks for your hospitality, but it's no good. 
You see, I told this little chap, and here he indicated the lizard, that he'd have to be quiet if he came up here, but he insisted on coming, but his stuff won't do here. I realize that, but he won't stop, so I just have to go home. Would you like me to make him quiet, said the flaming spirit. An angel now understood. Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, you're burning me. Keep away, said the ghost. Don't you want him killed? Well, you didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. Well, it's the only way, said the angel. Shall I kill it? That's a much bigger question, and I'm open to consider it, but it's a new point. I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it, because up here, it's kind of embarrassing. Well, can I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later. No, there is no time. May I kill it? I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really, don't bother. Look, it's gone to sleep on its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks so much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I'll be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process will be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. Well, don't you think so? I think over what you've said carefully, and I'll I'll honestly think about it. In fact, I'll let you kill it. I'd let you kill it now. But as a matter of fact, I'm feeling frightfully well today. It would be silly for me to do that now. I need to be in good health for the operation. Some other day. There is no other day. All days are present now. Get back, you're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You would kill me if you did. That's not true. Why are you hurting me now? I never said that it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Oh, I know, you think I'm a coward, but isn't that it? Is it really, isn't it? I say, let me run back by tonight's bus, that's the travel back, and get an opinion from my own doctor. I'll come again tomorrow. This moment contains all moments. Why are you torturing me? You're jeering me. How can I let you tear me to pieces? If you want to help me, why didn't you just kill the damn thing without asking me before I knew? It would be all over by now if you had. I cannot kill it against your will. It's impossible. Do I have your permission? The angel's hands were almost closed on the lizard, but not quite. And the lizard began chattering to the ghost so loud that I could hear what it was saying. This is a third-party observer. Be careful, it said. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. And it's not natural. How could you live? You'd only be a sort of ghost, not even a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. He's a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but not for us. I know there are no real pleasures now, only dreams, but aren't they better than nothing? And I'll be so good. I'll admit, sometimes I've gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. Quite innocent. Do I have your permission, said the angel. I know it'll kill me if you do. It won't. May I? Go on, can't you? Get it over with. Do what you like, bellowed the ghost, but ended whimpering, God help me, God help me. And the next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony, such as agony, such as I never heard on earth. The burning one closed his grip on the reptile, twisted it while it bit and writhed, and then flung it broken back on the turf. The ghost screams, I'm done for. For a moment, I could make out nothing distinctly, and then I saw between me and the nearest bush, unmistakably solid, but growing every moment, more and more solid, the upper arm and the shoulder of a man. 
brighter still and stronger, the legs and hands, the neck and golden head materialized while I watched. And if my attention had not wavered, I should have seen the actual completing of a man, an immense man. What distracted me was the fact that at the same moment, something seemed to be happening to the lizard. At first, I thought the operation had failed. So far from dying, the creature was still struggling and growing bigger. And as it struggled and as it grew, it changed. And its rear parts grew rounder and the tail still flickering became the tail of hair and flickered between huge and glossy buttocks. Suddenly, I started back, rubbing my eyes, and what stood before me was the greatest stallion I had ever seen, silvery white, but with the mane and tail of gold. It was smooth and shining, rippled with swells of flesh and muscle, winning and stamping with his hooves. At each stamp, the land shook and the trees dindled. The new-made man turned and clapped the horse's neck and nosed his bright body. Horse and master breathed each into each other's nostrils. The man turned from it, flung himself at the feet of the burning one, and embraced him. I think that's the perfect picture of how what God is asking from you and from me is not to take away the things that we love, but to actually take away the things that we love that are killing us so that they can be redeemed and we can enjoy them. Will you bring God your things? That's the invitation. Let's pray.